Finally, we have some World Cup qualifying clarity. For all your information, download the new and improved U.S. Soccer app, bringing users notifications about game and roster announcements, player news, and much more. Version 2.0 of the official U.S. Soccer app is the easiest place to access all U.S. Men's National Team and U.S. Women's National Team content. Download it now in the App Store and on Google Play. This is crazy. This is absolutely insane. Such at a loss for words. I mean, I'll find them, don't worry. Do y'all like playing against adversity? Man, I just like playing, period. I'm just I'm shocked and I'm so proud of our guys, man. Unbelievable. Putting the crest on every single time means something to me. Hi, I'm Danielle Slayton, and you're listening to the U.S. Soccer Podcast. Hey, this is Charlie Davies. I'm flying solo this week, and I'm also very excited to welcome U.S. Men's National Team head coach Greg Berhalter. Greg, this is your debut on the pod. Congratulations. Uh, how are you and the family doing? Everyone's doing great, Charlie. You know, enjoying um, summer trying to get through these times, but, you know, just a lot of good family time and, um, and, and really, um, really enjoying being together. That's what it's all about. Um, we all know the World Cup draw just recently happened. What was your initial reaction? You know, there were some spots that you're looking at um, and you wanted to avoid. You know, we didn't like the eighth spot. We didn't love the seventh spot. And, um, you know, four, four to us was a, a neutral to positive spot. So, you know, it's okay. You know, once we know, I think clarity is is the first step. So now we know. And, um, you know, I don't mind the cadence of going away and then coming home, even though it adds an extra leg of travel. Mm -hmm. I think there's there's some, you know, motivation that you want to come home and, and win your game after, you know, going um, outside your country. So overall, you know, it, we're happy. We're ready to go. I'm ready to go. I mean, we've we've missed the the U.S. men's national team for for too long. Uh, Fourteen matches, seven home, seven on the road. The first four home games uh, were the first home games in the first half of the schedule. Uh, June, the June window, four games in about two weeks. How how important is it to not only start off right, but to to be so influential at the start of qualifying? You know, if there is a four game window in June, um, like planned. You know, I think that it is, it's a great group of games. I mean, you can get off to a really fast start in qualifying. And when you think about, you know, you said, you set a goal of, you know, of being in the top two spots after the four games or, or getting a number of points. And I think it's, it's attainable. It's a good, I think when you look at where everyone's at, European guys, for example, they're coming the end of this season, you know, it's, you say, okay, guys, it's a two week push. We got four games, you know, here's what we're looking to do. Here's how we're looking to start qualifying. So I think it's a it's a great beginning to qualifying. It will it will it will shake things up right away. It will sort teams out right away, and overall good start. When you look at the schedule and the teams coming to the United States to play, uh, which cities would you ideally like to play in? You know, for us, it's about it's about two things. It's about um, making it as difficult as possible for the opponent based on where the venue is, and the second thing would be uh, a pro U.S. crowd. And those are the two filters I think that we want to use. Um, you know, we want to make it hard. You know, the, the travel is already hard in CONCAV. Make it even harder. Make the weather, whatever the weather could be that could affect the opponent. Let's, let's find that spot. And then we want a crowd that's going to be filled, right? And that's going to be loud. I mean, you, you've seen, you know, qualifying crowds. You know how they get. I mean, it's nothing like it, man. Nothing like it. So, 
that's what we're, that's what we're looking for. So you don't take into account the stadium itself. There's not like a, a good feel as far as you know a certain stadium that you, that you'd like to play in. Well, I mean, Columbus is always nice, mm-hmm. right? I mean, especially with my history there, but also the national team's history there. Forget about, you know, me as a coach there. Think about, you know, the great games the U.S. national team has had in Columbus. That's great. But, you know, having said that, there's other new stadiums that just haven't been tested in qualifying. Mm-hmm. Minnesota is a good example. Um, you know, fantastic stadium, good climate. You know, that that's a prime example. You know, you have um, Kansas City, which I think is a great venue for, for certain opponents. Um you know, DC has, you know, great new stadiums. So there's, there's a number of really good stadiums. Then you think about, you know, Orlando and Miami are possible, you know, if you're paying the Caribbean that you could, you know, they have good, good facilities. So, you know, we're lucky. I think we're spoiled now, Charlie, in, in the United States that we have a number of great soccer specific stadiums. And if you need to go big, you also have the football stadiums where you can get a huge crowd. Absolutely. I I do miss those, those days, yeah. um, playing yeah. in front of passionate crowds in those nice stadiums. Naturally, everyone has their eyes on the, the Mexico home and away matches when, you, when you're talking about this World Cup qualifying schedule, as well as Costa Rica. You're playing two of the last three World Cup qualifiers on the road at Azteca in Mexico and, and in uh, San Jose in Co- Costa Rica. How difficult are those matches, you know, and, and how important is it to go into those, that last three, um, feeling like you're already secured a world cup, uh, berth. I think on paper, they're really difficult, right? When you think about, I think we have three points in the history of qualifying in, um, in Mexico. And I think we have one in the history of qualifying in Costa Rica. So that tells you that on paper, it's a really difficult challenge. You can't expect to, to get that many points in those games, but you know, you look at the three game series, uh, the, the last three games, you have one home game. So, you know, you you'd expect to pick up three points in that game. And then, you know, if you can get a point uh, out of the other two games, you if you can win one of those games, if you can tie both of them, I mean, you're ahead of the curve. And, mm-hmm. and we hope by then we're in a position that, um, you know, it, it, it that we're, we're secure, that we're qualified. Right. I mean, that's the idea, right? That you get into those games not needing anything, but you never know, right? In, uh, in a perfect world, that's what you're doing, but the world's not perfect, Charlie. We know that. That's, you couldn't be uh, closer to the truth with that. Uh, what are the pluses and minuses of this format? Um, I think the, the, the minuses are there's just more teams, right? There's more teams. It's, it's bigger format, four more games. Um, so that, that would be the initial minus. I think the plus is, there could be teams knocking each other off. There could be more room for forgiveness. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to tell. I want to, I want to wait till it plays out. But if you think about it with six teams, everyone's pretty much in it the whole time, right? There could be an example where after five games, you know, teams feel like they're eliminated and their performance is affected by that. As a player, what did you learn about the perils of world cup qualifying? You know, those, they're very difficult games. There's no question about it, but they're games that I always enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but I love like that was the the highlight. You're on the bus, you're, you know, you're in Costa Rica, you're going to the stadium. The whole street is lined with supporters outside the stadium are, are riots, you know, police are beating, you know, beating up people on horses and they're throwing at the bus. And I mean, and then you get in the stadium and before the game, 90 minutes before the game is completely filled up. And I mean, I love that environment. It was such a, it was such a great challenge. And I really looked forward to it because, you know, 
it, it's just, it's a great feeling to know that you're going to these countries, you're representing your country and you have a chance to, you know, to be the team that wins here. I fed off that energy. I yeah, loved it. It, it made too. it, it made it more real. Um, yeah. you, are talking about the dreams, uh, that we have always had as a kid, right. To represent yeah. our country and to play on the road with people throwing rocks and, and bags of urine. Yeah. You know, it means something. Um, Tim Howard was a recent guest on the pod and he mentioned the importance of winning the home matches, making sure you take all three and just getting a point on the road. Maybe you steal a win here or there. Uh, do you think that's the same method uh, of success? What I'd say is he's absolutely right with you have to win your home matches. No question about it. Like that's, you know, you have to, when you think about in the history of the hex, we've only lost three matches at home. So we're traditionally very strong at home and you have to win your home matches. When you look at last qualifying cycle, you know, I, I said we only got three points on the road, but we also lost two home games, right? And so that's what really cost us the World Cup. But for me, it's, to, it's, it's something where I think, you know, this group, if we really want to build a strong group, a resilient group, this group needs to go on the road and get some wins. Mm -hmm. you, you talked about this team being young, um, not having the experience. That's natural when, you, when you're talking about the next generation, right? This is a, a team full of, of young players that are, you know, playing club football in Europe and in MLS and doing well, but not really tested internationally. I know on July 23rd, 2000, in a World Cup qualifier that happened in Costa Rica, you were called for a handball. It seemed to be a phantom call. I've watched this replay a couple of times. Centeno into the box. Here's Medford with a great chance. Chips it back. It's off for Halter. And the Costa Ricans calling for a handball. It's a penalty kick. Can you specify what happened in that moment for us? It was the craziest thing. It really was. I mean, we were, we were, we felt really comfortable in the game. You know, it was one of those things where we knew we never have gotten a result in, in San Jose. And there was no, you know, it was, it was done. It was injury time. The game was over guy. He's in line and he goes to cross it. And I headed out of bounds. It was a, it was a close cross and I headed right out of bounds for a corner kick. And, you know, it was actually funny because, it hit me like on the side of the head where like it was, it was hurting. I was like rubbing my head, you know? And I turned around and Pendergast, the Jamaican referee pointed for a penalty kick. It was, it was one of those things where you almost can't, like you couldn't believe it. You couldn't believe like that would be called a penalty kick. And, you know, Claudio <laughs> went nuts. Bruce went nuts. You know, it resulted in like Claudio being suspended for three games, Bruce being suspended for two games. I mean, it was, it, we lost, we did lose our cool in the end, but it just showed, I think what it shows, Charlie, is that anything can happen. Mm -hmm. Any, and that's what you have to be prepared for. And it's how you, you know, how you navigate through those situations. Which leads me to uh, what makes playing on the road so difficult in qualifying? Is it the, the fans, the intimidating crowds that maybe sways a referee to make that decision? Um, what are the challenges when you're playing on the road? You know, I, th I think that the the fans definitely affect um, definitely affect the referee. But here here's what I'd say is that it, it's a combination of everything, Charlie. And you you know this, right? So you arrive there. You know you're playing in Guatemala, and now the game you land in Guatemala City, and the game is four hours away in the middle of a jungle, and you have to drive a bus four hours, and it's hot. It's it, hot as anything. The most humid environment you ever had. You get there to the hotel. There's a radio station blaring music outside your hotel the whole night. There's fireworks the whole night. You wake up the next day, 
And now your opponent is playing the evil empire. You know, they're playing the, you know, the, the country that they view as the enemy. Mm-hmm. And it's the game that's the biggest game for these guys that they're playing. I mean, Mexico is great, but to, they, they see us as, as a bigger target, a different, different target. And that's what adds up into these games that become just crazy. And, and, and you know, it, it's, but it's fun. You know, it's fun. Well, it, it's got to be gratifying to know that you're leading this next generation of young men in, into those, uh, those lines dens and giving them that vital experience so that they can have success on the international level. You've, you've also started your U.S. men's national team career as a coach um, in, in difficult situations, to say the least. Uh, you came into this year expecting to do a month in Qatar, and, and at the last minute, the political climate changed those plans. You had friendly scheduled in Europe for March, uh, which everyone was excited about, but the COVID shutdown canceled those games. And now we've been in this whole holding pattern ever since. How have you managed the situation with your players and staff? Well, I think that, you know, when you start at the beginning of the year, we always talk about controlling what we can control and, um, you know, having a plan, working on a better plan and, you know, having a growth mindset that we want to improve every day. And and the the Qatar experience gave us the opportunity to put all that into practice. You know, we had to make a decision, you know, we were getting on the plane that night. We had to make a decision that morning if we're pulling the plug on it. And for the safety of everyone, we decided this is what we need to do. So once we decide that, now you have to plan a training camp. You have to get off the ground. You know, you have to change, you know, 30 tickets or 45 tickets. You have to get all the gear that's already been there back and you have to make do. And I think the staff did a fantastic job in just dealing with it. And we pivoted really quickly. We missed only one day of training. The gear came in three days later. We made do with the gear we had and, um, and we had a successful training camp. You know, with this other stuff, it's the, it's the same way with the games being canceled. You know, it, it's just understanding that there's things outside of our control and, um, and we have to deal with it. We, you know, we still wanted to keep the group close together. We created group chats. We did Zoom calls with guys. We've been in contact with the guys regularly. We watched all their games. So it's making the best of a, of a bad situation. And that's all we can really do. You spoke you spoke about keeping in contact with the players. How often and, and what are you rely, relying to them? And, and can you describe any of the projects you and your staff uh, have worked on in particular? So, uh, you know, there's been a um, – it's different with each player, but we regularly like to check in with the guys every, every three weeks or so, just in general. And then we're watching all their games, and, and it's, it's not uncommon for us to, to send the player clips of, of his game and say, hey, you know, have a look at this. And if you want to discuss, we can, you know, set up a zoom call and discuss it more thoroughly. We've done that a number of times. Um, you know, some projects that we looked at, we started analyzing the, you know, defensive schemes. Um, we looked at Atalanta, the, how, you know, they play a really unusual way. It's, it's nice to see that. Um, you know, we looked at Liverpool defending the four, three, three, we looked at counterattacking from defensive set pieces, you know, a whole bunch of stuff we, we started looking at and, and really digging deep into any plans to hold a camp in Qatar before the World Cup in 2022? You know, we had plans, and I'm just not sure. It's it's hard to really, you know, to 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 talk about concrete plans now, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, would you Would you like to? Uh, I mean, the it would be a great. Uh, you know, that was the idea in the beginning. You know, we we got some backlash about it. Why are they going to Qatar? And the fact is, FIFA awarded the World Cup to Qatar. We can't change that, right? And and so what we're trying to do is give our give our players the best opportunity to be successful in Qatar. And we feel by knowing the environment will help, 
So ideally, we'd like to get back there. I'm I'm not exactly sure um, uh, how it's going to work out. Right. How, how often are you communicating with Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride? And what are those conversations generally about? Every day. Every day we're talking. And, you know, with in, it's, you know, it's bigger picture type of stuff with Ernie. With Brian, it's more about you know, the nuts and bolts of, of the national team and, and our young players and um, our other national teams and how we're in contact with the clubs and how we're, you know, servicing those relationships. First year on the job, Greg, take yeah. us through that year, what you came in looking to accomplish and how that colored the decisions you made tactically. You know, that's a good question. I think when I look back at the year, I think that there was a certain mix between, you know, wanting to see some of the older guys that, that, um, you know, wanted to see what they had, wanted to see what they're about. Um, you know, some of the older guys, we looked at the depth chart. We said, okay, if, if there's a younger guy in this position, we'll look at them, but if there's not, we're comfortable sticking with, with an older guy, for example, you know, and, and you look at guys like Danny Lovitz, he's an example of that. Um, you know, Walker Zimmerman, you know, he's not that old, but he's an example of a guy, um, you know, Will Trapp's an example guy, guys that you knew, um, understood what we want to do, understand the, the, the league and everything. So for us, it was, it was twofold. We started out in that fashion. And then as it grew, we, you know, we incorporated the European guys, we incorporated some younger guys. And I think by the end of the year, we got to a point where we said, okay, we, we have a very good understanding of what we need to do to be successful on the international level. I think that was important. Like the games, you know, if you think you can go out and play a certain way. Now you need to test it out. And once you test it out, now you say, okay, this is how, this is how we can be most successful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we gained the most. And we also got an opportunity to look at a lot of players, man. You know, I'm not a huge, I wasn't a huge fan of, of, you know, opening it up. I think the national team should be special, but we're at a point where it's a clean slate. You have to look at guys. You have to give, you know, what we call Uli Lanez and he hadn't played a pro game yet. And right. then he scored a goal for us. You know, I'm, Normally, I'm completely against stuff like that. But when you're looking at the January camp, you're saying, when else are we going to do this? Why not give these guys an opportunity in, in this situation? So, you know, and, and in the first January camp, we bought older guys. The second January camp, we bought our super young team. And, and I think in both cases, we got a lot of information. And it was, it was um, you know, so overall, the first year, I think we have a, a much better understanding of the player pool. I think we have a much better understanding of international soccer. And there have been players as well who have have come into the player pool uh, probably unexpectedly. Uh, you know the the Champions League is is coming to an end. Uh, Tyler Adams had a massive impact with RB Leipzig's campaign. How do you feel he has progressed? I know he's only been in the camp once, which is which is uh, kind of mind boggling when you it's when crazy. you watch him play in Champions League. But uh, how how do you think he he's improved? You know it's. <laughs> First of all, he's a great guy. And if you think about a guy who's able to improve without being on the field or being with the team or meaning something to a group without being there, it's Tyler Adams. You know, all he has so much respect from his teammates on the U.S. team. Um, It's great to see. But, you know, he's an example. You know, when you talk about experience or lack of experience, right, he's a guy that doesn't have international qualifying experience, right? But you can't tell me that being on the field for a semifinal of a Champions League doesn't give him the, the wherewithal to play in high-pressure pressure situations. Weston McKennie's been on the field in Champions League. You know, he played against Man City in the Champions League. Serginho Dest is playing, you know, in the Champions League. I mean, these guys, 
it's different. Okay, concave is different, but these guys know what high pressure situations are. And, and, you know, we'll translate what it actually means in CONCACAF and we'll talk to them about the weather and the field and stuff like this. But, you know, they'll be ready for high pressure situations. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, playing in Europe and in, in uh, the top competitions in those high pressure situations, that'll that'll prepare you for CONCACAF. Uh, another player whose stock has risen over the past year is Giovanni Reina. You grew up uh, with his father. You played with him on the U.S. men's national team. What have you seen in Gio that resembles his father's ability and where do you see him fitting in with the full team? So I think, you know, the first thing is him and Claudio and Gio are completely different players. You know, Claudio is like a conductor. Right. You know, he's, he's a guy that makes everything look easy, that, you know, is very, very fluid. Gio has some of that fluidity, but he's, he's more of a, you know, he's more of a game changer. He's more of a guy that's, that's cutthroat that goes, you know, that's more direct that, you know, wants to, wants to make goals, wants to make assists, you know, uh, a very, um, you know, a very uh, attacking threat, so to speak. So they're, they're different players, but Gio, Gio's role is going to depend on, on him, right? I mm-hmm. mean, we're not putting a, a limit on when you're ready, you know, when you're ready is going to depend on what level you're performing at. And if right. Gio performs at Dortmund, he's able to get on the field at Dortmund and make an impact there. He's certainly going to be ready for the men's national team. Greg, as we're speaking, Fulham has just announced the signing of American Anthony Robinson, the left back uh, from Wigan. And, and what are your, what are your initial thoughts? What do you think about the move? So a couple of things I really like about this, Charlie, the first thing is that they're playing in the Premier League. You know, there's no better league in the world to be competing in than the Premier League. So that's great. Second thing is, you know, Fulham has a rich tradition of, of Americans performing really well there. You know, you go to Brian McBride, Carlos Bocanegra, Casey Keller, to name a few. You know, Tim Ream has been one of their outstanding players for the last five seasons. So, you know, to have Anthony in that company, I think is great. And I know Tim will look after him and and help him develop, but it's a good opportunity for him to be playing every week. Um, You know, from everything we've been hearing, you know, they they have him competing um, for a starting position, you know, penciling him as a starter. So I think it's good news for him and the men's national team program. What about as a left back? We finally have like a left back playing in the Prem. Not bad, huh? Not bad. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> You're a coach um, who is always absorbing and taking in new ideas. I've always respected you uh, from, from the first time I've met you because I, I knew how dedicated you were to the game, how respectful you were of your opponents. Has there been a club or a formation that fascinated you in the past couple of months? And who would you look to or what would you look to add um, as far as uh, some of those ideas into your system? So I think, you know, when I'm looking at, when I'm looking at performances that I really like or, or parts of games that I really like, I mean, one thing I've been focused on now is just compactness of teams. When you look at Bayern, when they played against Barcelona, the compactness was amazing. You know, maybe 25 yards between the, the last defender and the top striker and able to re- like make it very difficult. You can, any pass in internal, you can, you can pressure with a number of different guys. That's been really impressive from Byron, how they've been able to do that. So that, that caught my eye. Um, you know, some of the, some of the, you know, I think Lil's performance against Man City w- was really good in terms of the, the five, three, two, and then being able to, to um, transition from there. That that's been interesting to watch. Um, 
you know, it's just, I love watching all the games, you know, I love, you know, learning from it. It's, you know, the frustrating thing, Charlie, now is that you watch the game and it's like, okay, maybe in October we can integrate some of that. You know, you're still months away from actually practicing. I want to get a team outside of my neighborhood and start practicing. Right. 100 <laughs> uh, percent what you spent three weeks down at the mls's back tournament what why was that experience important and what'd you get out of it yeah so i think the first thing was to you know i mean the first thing is watching soccer right i wanted to mm-hmm. watch our guys see where our guys are the second thing is tell is showing the guys that we're in it we're in it together with them you know, we're not just, they sacrificed a lot to go there and to be there. And, and we wanted to show that they're there with them, that we're there with them. And the third thing was looking at everyone, looking at the whole player pool. You know, if you, if you can think about us being able to watch 35 live games or 36 live games in a, in a three week period, you know, we won't watch 36 live games in MLS for years. So think about the opportunity we had from a scouting perspective. You know, that, that was invaluable. I mean, it's, you know, when you think about, you know, maybe we'll see five, six games a year in MLS, right? Seven games live a year. You know, you don't see that many just because of, of your travel schedule, when you're playing and, and this and that. So, you know, this gave us a good opportunity to see, see a lot of players, support the players and watch live soccer. Before I get into the scouting aspect and, and how you were able to to watch uh, some some players and maybe some players impressed you that you weren't expecting to, um, let's step away from the U.S. soccer uh, head coaching role and and more of a father role. You got to witness your son make his professional debut uh, for the Columbus Crew right at at um in this this tournament. And can you describe? Because every father, I think wants their kids to fulfill their dreams. Um, he's obviously been by your side and watched you uh, play and, and coach in, in MLS and, and for the U.S. Men's National Team. And now he gets his opportunity to, to put on the boots and, and represent the Columbus crew. How, how special was that for you? You know, it was, it was surreal. It really was. Um, you know, I never thought I'd be that emotional watching a game. I never thought I'd be that like, nervous for him why you know like it was, it was such a strange feeling normally even when you're coaching your team you have this calm you know and and with him it, I was a wreck I was all over the place it was like oh my gosh but I think about you know his journey you know when I first went back to or you know when I was coaching at Hammerby you know he was playing for Hammerby and and he was on the second team because he was so small and then he went to Columbus Crew and he was 13 years old and he was in the academy and he was so small and to think about like his, and he always had to hang in there. And you're thinking like, man, this guy always has to deal with being the small guy. And he's playing with guys twice the size of him and he has to deal with it. He's getting fouled and he's, you know, and just to think about his journey of how he developed and how he stayed positive and how he stayed focused and understanding that his time will come. And, you know, we put a sport court down in our basement in Columbus and, you know, me and my wife would be upstairs watching a show at night at, you know, 10 o'clock at night. And all we're here is boom, 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 balls hitting against the wall, you know, for hours. So to think about all that hard work, you know, and to pay off for someone and they can realize their dream by, by becoming a professional mm-hmm. is, you know, it was, it was really a special feeling. And I got to see him firsthand in his freshman year with North Carolina and see him coming from, you know, a player coming off the bench, getting valuable minutes to being a, a, an impactful uh, starter. So uh, he made he's made some strides in a short amount of time. So you have to be uh, grateful and, and a proud of of everything he's accomplished. So well done, dad. Uh, back to uh, the MLS's back tournament. 
what were the highlights? Uh, who impressed you? We, you talked about the scouting aspect. There's got to be some guys that you you weren't aware of or you didn't know that they could play at such a high level. So I think to to see Ayo Akinola, um, his movement behind the back line, you know, he reminded me of, of you a little bit, how like a powerful guy, a runner who can get behind the back line, finish his chances. You know, I was really impressed with him. And, you know, we've seen him last year. You know, we've been in in touch with him in the past. He's played for our younger teams. We got a lot of good feedback um, about him. But to see him live and see him do what he did was really impressive. I, th- I think that was that was good. Um, you know, from a team standpoint, um, you know, I really liked Portland, just how they, you know, they won. So it's easy to say that, but I really liked how they were able to stick to what they wanted to do. They're a very compact team at counterattack. Very simple. Mid block, win the ball and go. And they proved that they can do it. They have enough quality up top that they don't need to attack with, with all the players. So if you think about their fullbacks are very rarely in attack, right? It's five guys back five guys attacking, but they have enough quality to make the difference in the game. I was really impressed with how Oscar was able to turn around Orlando. They're, they're a very solid team, you know, really solid looking team. They perform well as a unit. I thought that was, that was good to see. Um, you know, I, I really like Columbus in, in the group stage, but I think they weren't challenged enough in the group stage um, with the opponents just based on, on where the opponents were at. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, overall, I think, you know, it was good to see just how teams progressed and how as guys got fit that they started improving their performances. And some guy, some guys, as, as other players got fit, they dropped their performance. You know, right. so it was interesting to see that. You know, I thought young players that that impressed me were, were Brendan Aronson, yeah. Iowa Canola, Hassani Dotson, Aaron Herrera, yeah. uh, Mark McKenzie, to name a few. Uh, was there one player that surprised you? Young, younger player that may not might not be ready now. But you you see the potential, you know the the kid from the young kid from San Jose, um, you know, who came in and just he looks like he's got a ton of power. Yes, um, you know he he looks interesting. The kid from from LAFC, the young American who mm-hmm. came in, also is looks look looks like an interesting player. Um, you know, I liked Hassani. I thought Hassani did a great job in the tournament. You know, Eric Williamson was a guy who yes. it, it was funny because, you know, he had he had an up and down performance, but I think stabilized towards the end. But, you know, his first game was amazing. I thought he mm-hmm. was the best player in the field. And then, you know, second game wasn't so good. And then I think he raised his level as it went. But, you know, ended up starting for a team that won the won the um, won the tournament. And, he, and he's an interesting player, Re- really fluid guy, smooth guy, but as fast as he needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'd like to see a little more, but you'd like to see a little bit more of the chara in him. Yep. Um, but so, well, you know, Jackson, Ewell I think was, was really good. I like Brendan Aronson. Brendan Aronson did a good job. So overall it was, it was just great to see the guys. See, it, there are so many young, talented Americans right now, whether you're talking about in Europe, in MLS, which brings me to the point. I also think it's, it's very important for players to know exactly what is needed in your eyes to get a call up or to get a chance when you're watching MLS matches, uh, you know, even USL, a European, uh, you know, lower leagues, what are you looking for in particular? So I think that, you know, that's a good question. We're thinking about even MLS is back, right? What we're saying is if you're a national team player, you have to be standing out in these games, 
right? We're not looking for averages, average performances in these games. You know, if we're scouting a USL game or a lower, lower level Europe game, these guys need to be standing out. And that's a national team player. You know, international soccer is extremely difficult. It's this extreme high level. We need guys that, that can separate themselves um, on the field. And specifically, you know, what we're looking for is technical players, right? So they need to have a technical proficiency. They need to be physically, have good physical capabilities. They need to be smart soccer players and then understand, you know, how to play their position uh, on the field. So those are, those are some things that we're definitely looking at. All right. So now everyone knows it's no secret. This is how you get onto the U S men's national team or get a call up. Uh, you, you have to stand out. Now let's take it back, Greg. I love, I love reminiscing in the past. This photo happened to pop up on my phone, right? Look at the hair, look at the do, you know, uh, you decide to leave UNC early and head to Holland. Swole, what compelled you to do that? You know, the craziest thing was I always, when I was young, when I was 16, 15, 16 years old, I said, I'm going to play in Europe. You know, that's what I'm going to do. And I don't know why I said that because it wasn't common then, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of players going there, but it was something for me that I just, I had that dream. I watched a lot of soccer, uh, European soccer, a lot of Italian soccer. Uh, I studied all the, the European championship tapes, the world cup tapes, you know, watching all the goals and the games and everything. And for some reason, I just wanted to do it. And when I got the opportunity, I'll never forget, you know, I was actually with UNC in Germany at a, at a training camp. And I told Elmar Bolowicz, our, our coach, and, and I tell this story all the time, but I said, Elmar, you know, this is what, this is what I got. You know, what do you think about? And he, and, you know, to Elmar's credit, he could have been selfish and said, Greg, you know, you need to come back. And he said, Greg, you're ready to go. And, and that was the push I needed because Charlie, you know how scary it is to be 20 years old and say, you're going to leave your family and leave Co- North Carolina. You ever been to the university of North Carolina? You have yeah. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Right. Exactly. You know, to leave that and say, okay, I'm going to go live on my own in Zwolle. And, but I needed that push and he said, you're ready. And, and I just did it. I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't regret it at all. Well, you stayed in Europe for almost your entire career. So yeah. w- were you, you know, going through the, the, the process Were you like, this is, this is it for me. I don't see a, a need to go back to the United States. Like you, you fully embraced the culture. Yeah, no, it was that, but I was right on the point of, okay, I'm going to be a German coach. You know, I did my licenses in Germany. This is what I'm going to do. And then Bruce called and said, Hey, what do you think about coming back to the galaxy? Here's the project. Here's what we're doing. And, you know, really thankful for that opportunity because I always wanted to play in, in the United States. You know, I always, I always wanted to, it was always, you know, like as it was something that's so nice that I saw the league develop, I was away for 15 years and to see the league develop to what it was, it was a great opportunity, opportunity for me to play with the galaxy. Because you, you, you spent so much time in Europe. Does that, did that experience influence you to push players now to go to Europe to play in that in, in you know outside your comfort zone and how do you guide players into making the right situation uh, you know putting them in the right situation? You know, I explain it like this. I, I think that every player has a comfort zone, right? Is this little circle where they're comfortable comfortable operating in, and then outside that comfort zone is your growth zone, and that's where when you're in it, you don't feel good. You feel uncomfortable. You feel challenged. You feel frustrated at times. But the thing is, is outside of that growth zone, that's where your goals are. So if you're not pushing out of your comfort zone and getting into that uncomfortable space, you're never going to reach your goals. So for every player, it's individual. 
and some players, you know, grow so maybe MLS and that's fine. You know, as long as they're getting out, they're getting out of their comfort zone. But so for some players, they need a bigger challenge. And, and for them, that challenge is Europe. And you see guys that are thriving in Europe now, um, you know, that have challenged themselves. Let's go back to your first cap. I heard there's a great story from the 1994 trip to Saudi Arabia. What, what was that experience like? <laughs> I don't know what story you're talking about, but uh, it, may, <laughs> it may have something to do with. So I, I, um, I got the call up and it was amazing. You know, like, it, so I went over to Holland and within two months, or I think it was even a month, I get a call to the senior team and it was amazing. And I've been in, I was in the U20s, U23, all that stuff, but it was a great feeling to be called into the senior team. And, um, I never forget like getting the fax. It was a fax back then. And it was in the hotel, you know, the little cubby, the male cubbies. I came mm -hmm. back from training and it was in there. I was still in the hotel and I, um, I read the fax and said, okay, this is what you have to do. And then there was no cell phones. I mean, you guys like, you 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 must think I'm an idiot, but there was there was no technology back then, right? Yeah. So they're basically okay. He, they I think they even sent the flight ticket in the mail or something like that. I mean, it was something crazy. So I get to the airport in Amsterdam, and I had to connect through Heathrow, and I get to to Heathrow, and I'm looking for for Saudi Arabia on the board at Heathrow, and I can't find it. I'm like, I can't find <laughs> Saudi Arabia here. What is happening? And I'm walking around, walking around, and typical guys, guys never ask directions, right? Mm -hmm. They just try to figure it out. So I'm trying to figure it out for hours. And finally, I pulled someone aside. I said, listen, I'm going to Saudi Arabia. She's like, oh, you mean Riyadh? I was like, what? She's like, Riyadh? I was like, uh, I guess. She's like, yeah, that flight left an hour ago. Oh, I was, like, I was like, oh man. So I missed my flight. I missed my flight. I don't even know, Charlie, I don't even know how everything else fell into place, but I got a hotel somehow. Next day I was on the flight to Riyadh and I showed up two days before the game. And what uh, did the coach every, say? <laughs> Bora didn't say anything. He just didn't start me. Uh, yep. <laughs> but I, I, I know how playing, that goes. But I ended up playing, a, I came in at halftime and made my debut and it was a, it was a um, a great feeling, a really great feeling to to play for the senior team. Well, you you finally made it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Better late than never. Yeah. You you were part of the team that advanced to the quarterfinals of the 2002 FIFA World Cup, uh, one of my favorite World Cups. And your two appearances at the tournament came in the two knockout round games. <sighs> I mean, we go we can go back to it every time. Um, but let's let's start with what were your thoughts when you were called up uh, upon to start the round of 16 match versus Mexico? You know, so, uh, you know, like any player, you're frustrated that you haven't played yet. You know, I, w I was frustrated that I wasn't starting. You know, I think there was a there was, you know, contested between me and Jeff Agus and I wanted to play. There was no question about it. But I think, you know, the most important thing for me and the most important thing about that group was how do you handle disappointment? You know, what are you, are you still going to be a good teammate? Are you still going to support your teammates? And it's not easy. I mean, like you're asking these guys, you're taking elite players and they're all starting for their club teams. They're all playing a part for their club teams. And now you're saying, okay, you have to be a role player. You have to do this for your, for this team. And it's not easy to accept sometimes, but I think the mark of building a strong team is having players accept that role and still be in it completely for the team. And that's what 2002 was. And that's why it was a great experience. And then when my number was called and it happened to be called in the big games, I was ready to do my part. 
And, you know, and, and I think that's, that's what I remember most from the team. And then the Mexico game was something where, you know, it's hard to describe because if, if, you know, you're comfortable with Mexico, you know, Mexico, you know, if you, if I asked you, would you rather play Italy in the second round or Mexico in the second round, you'd say Mexico all day. Yes. Right? And that, Absolutely. And, we got, and we got that opportunity, not only that, but we got to see it play out with Mexico and Italy in the last game saying, okay, they're comfortable with their position. They're no, no team's going to try to win the ball. They're just going to pass the ball around the back and end the game. So they, they were comfortable with that. So that gave us extra motivation as well. Saying, okay, this, this is what they want, what they got it. You know, they got this. And, and for us, we were, you know, we're, we're ready for it. You know, it was a hot day. Um, and you know, we, we had a game plan and we executed the game plan really well. And they were super frustrated as they get when, you know, things don't go their way. They end up getting a red card. You know, uh, a story I like to tell is, you know, you know, when you're in those games and you get the second goal and you know that that's the result. And that's Mm -hmm. what it was. It was like, when we got that second goal, I'll never, it was like such elation, such a great feeling of saying we, we got, we won this game. Watching that match, um, that's probably one of my top three favorite U.S. men's national team matches of all time. Uh, along with that, the opening match against Portugal, what, what, a, what a match that was. But this brings me to the Torsten Frings handball in the quarterfinal, the moment. It'd be very interesting to get another look at this. There may have been a handball in there, too. There's the header. It beats Oliver Kahn. It's under him. Oh, There's the handball. Like a handball. That's a handball. It's hard to say whether the whole ball crossed the line, but it certainly struck the hand of a German defender on the post. Burhalter on the flying volley to get it through. What could have been? Do you ever find yourself thinking about that? You know what I think about? I, I honestly think about the funny thing is, is as the corner kick was happening, what, what I did was I. I saw Tony go into his position front post. And, w- and what I did was I, I started running the same direction. And then I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to cut back. You know, it's the famous forward move, back move. Right. And I, I just did that. And, and I knew there was space back there and Tony, and it went right to his head. He flicked it on perfect to the space. But what I reg- when I think about the situation, what I'm most disappointed with is I could have made better contact potentially, you know, I could have really volleyed it in and, I had to stretch for it, but it was on my left foot and I made enough contact to, to beat Khan because it bounced. But if I would have made great contact, it would have been, a, he wouldn't have been able to make a handball, you know? So, but thinking about that situation, you know, it's, it's anyone in that situation would have done exactly what Torsten Frings did. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was up to the referee to see it and, and, and call it. And he did. And that's the biggest, you know, that's the biggest issue. Where was VAR? Exactly. When, when we needed VAR the most, it <laughs> exactly. wasn't there. It failed us. That's um, right. Ah, oh, come on. Well, you had 44 caps playing for the U.S. men's national team. You were the first U.S. men's national team coach to play in a World Cup for the U.S. and now potentially coach them in a World Cup. What does that mean to you? And, and what are the moments that stand out to you when you look back on your national team days? You know, it's just, it's just a different feeling, man, representing your country and you get to play in so many special games, special events, you know, that's what, like, I really, you know, for us, it was, you know, we played in Europe. A lot of us played in Europe and coming back, it was like, it was like coming back to family. You know, I wasn't able to, you know, go back home, but it was coming back to the United States, coming back to our home, you know, being with our family, being with our teammates. It was such a great feeling. And 
you know, it was a great time period, you know, starting from Bora, you know, going to Steve Sampson, you know, in that whole thing. And then with Bruce, you know, Bruce was totally in control of what he was doing and really took our team to the next level. So, you know, it was a great experience and, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll qualify for the world cup and get to compete in the world cup. But I honestly think Charlie, this is, this is a group that it could do special things. And as this group matures and as this group really hits the, their stride, I think it's a group that could, that could do really well on the international stage. Well, if you don't leave this podcast feeling just hungry and, and excited, uh, you, you have something seriously wrong with you. Uh, are you, do you feel the heat by chance over there? The heat yeah. in terms of? The hot seat. You are about to jump on the hot seat. <laughs> oh, I was like, what I was like oh, right. actually, I am, I am a little warm, actually. All right. Rapid fire. All right, here we go. First thing that comes to mind, all, all right. right? All right. What pregame rituals as a player have you carried over as a coach? Oh, man. What pregame rituals? Hey, you know what's funny? Not one. Not one routine, no, no routine rituals, no, nothing. I, no, because here's the thing. Like I always try to break rituals. That's what I try to do because okay. I hate, I hate being stuck with them. I always said as a player, I always had rituals, you know, tie this shoe first, put this shinger up, <laughs> yeah. do this, do this. and I always try to break them. And as a coach, you know, I, I'm, I'm still trying to break them also, but in general, as a coach, I don't eat a lot of game day. It's, you know, I have a breakfast, maybe a breakfast and then that's about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, I just try to, you know, you try to break these, you know, rituals that you can just go, right. You know, it's, it's challenging. You know, you you still stick to some favorite boot as a player. Favorite boot. You know, what I'd say is, you know, I grew up playing in Copas and I thought that was the standard. Then Nike came and just took over the the comfort level of boots. And and what I'd say now is the boots now Mm -hmm. are more comfortable than ever. Like yeah. the boots you put on now, I could put on a pair of boots and play w- right away. You know, mm-hmm. remember before it was, you have to break them in. Yes. You have, you have to talk shower to them with bit. them. You have to <laughs> yeah. shower. You have to rub them down. You know, you have to break this, like bend the sole a little bit. Oh yeah. And, and now you just put them on and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. If you could go back and play in any match again, which would you choose? Oh man. Any match again? Can't change the result, but you could you could yeah. play it. You could relive it. Oh, uh, okay. To relive it. That's a great question. Thank you. Man, man you're asking some good <laughs> questions here. And I feel like in the two first hot seat answers, I didn't give you answers. <laughs> Let me see. Man. I don't I, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know. You gotta give me one. You gotta yeah. give me one match. Let's go to Germany. We'll go to Germany in the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Let's okay. Do that. I like yeah. that. Yeah. High tops or low tops? Depends on the shoe, right? I think if you're going Air Force Ones, you got to go low tops. You okay. Know, right? I think Jordans are a classic high top. Mm-hmm. You know, they look great in high top, mid top. Um, but for me, either one is is great. I like I like high tops and low tops. Okay. So you know your sneakers. I yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what's at the top of your bucket list? In life, in life, right now. Um. Wow, it's difficult because you know you have professional goals and you have um and you have you know family goals and things like mm-hmm. that. You know, 
a bucket list would be to, you know, to go, one thing is to go on a vacation with my whole family, you know, with, with the work schedule, the way it is, we never really have time to do that, but it'd be going somewhere, you know, a great experience with the whole family on vacation would, would be great. Any place in particular that you can think of? We just love to travel anywhere. I mean, we really love to experience new things and the, the whole family does. So, um, okay. you know, no, and professional, it's clear, you know, we want to win a world cup with the okay. United States. Best prank you've seen in a locker room. Oh no, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I, my first, my introduction uh, was, was icy hot in, in my sliders. Oh my gosh. So I was lucky enough to be around Paul Gascoigne for a mm-hmm. period. And, okay. and that guy was, I mean, I can tell you 10 pranks right now that would just have you laughing, but he would do things like cut people's top of the socks off so when they go to put on their socks their foot slips through <laughs> he, he would come to tra- he would come to training in one outfit and put on someone else's clothes to leave for, to leave to go home. oh that's a good one that's a good oh, one too uh, i mean he yeah he, the stuff he did was just crazy man it, i mean it was, it was hilarious if you laced up the boots today your son sebastian has you isolated 1v1 is he getting by you no chance no chance favorite yeah. country you've played in favorite country um you know i was lucky to take you take something away from everything you know like holland i was young it it was it was a great you know great era for dutch soccer in the mid 90s was it was great um i really loved that i loved going to england for a brief period and germany you know i always wanted to play in germany the stadiums every you know it was so it's it's really hard to tell like i the way i look at it charlie is I took something from every country and every country that I was in helped define who I am today. Love that answer. Who is the best player you played with? Best player I played with. I think when you, if you talk about top, top quality, I think it would be David Beckham for, for what he could, you know, what he could do with the ball, what he could do passing. I haven't seen, you know, that type of level from someone, you know, I played with, you know, a lot of guys in Germany that ended up making the national team, the Bender brothers, um, you know, Marcel Schaefer, guys like that. But this guy, you know, was an unbelievable passer of the ball. Really, really great to see up close. I don't doubt that whatsoever. I would have, I wouldn't have minded his service uh, yeah, a couple exactly. of times. As a fan, as a spectator, which game gave you, have you attended that provided the best atmosphere? So I've been to Barcelona, Real Madrid. Uh, that was great. I've been to Boca River. I've been to Celtic. Ra- I've been to Celtic Rangers. I've been to Dortmund, Schalke. Um, you know, I, I played in Bayern Munich, eighteen sixty Munich, which was mm. a fantastic atmosphere. So uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be be at a lot of great derby games. So wh- which one tops the the list? Um. <clears throat> I mean, I think the spectacle of a Barcelona Real Madrid game is, is great. Well, you know, when when Barcelona comes out and all the fans have the placards and they make some, they make a sign with, with the with their with their sheets and and the music plays that old old Spanish song. I mean, that's that's a special event. Greg, you killed it. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit Charlie, down for I the pod. Can I ask you a question now? Can I ask yes. you a quick question? Yeah, ask away. All right. So, I recently saw a post. And I want to congratulate you on being oh, cancer free. Thank you. Thank you no, so much. And, and I just talk to us about your journey. Talk mm-hmm. to us about, you know, the process and talk to us about where you're at now, because 
people need an understanding for for what you went through and what you're going through. I think my childhood set me up um, to deal with adversity. Uh, my mother suffers from mental illness, uh, a severe bipolar disorder, and my father suffered from a drug addiction. And so um, I think a lot of people know about that 2009 car accident and um, how I had to uh, you know, build myself back up and relearn how to use my body again, how, learn how to walk again, learn, let alone learn how to pass and shoot and dribble. Um, and dealing with with a leg that's now an inch and a half shorter than than my left leg, so uh, from the femur break that I that I had, so um, you know I, I felt like I've learned how to really appreciate everything we have in life and, and not take anything for granted. Uh, fast forward uh, seven years from there, and uh, my wife has given birth uh, to to our twin boys three months early, and so um, ninety two days in the NICU. Uh, that was a challenge and trying to play at the same time, uh, really not taking care of my body, not taking those ice baths, not eating properly, not sleeping properly because I needed to to rush to the hospital to support my family. Therefore, caused me to, to get an injury in a game. First half against the Timbers, I pull, pull my groin, I get a scan, they find a tumor in my other leg, um, in my groin. So um, it turned out to be cancerous, uh, a liposarcoma cancer. It was a rare cancer in a rare, rare place. So um, that was probably uh, out of my whole life. Um, that was the, the most difficult uh, moment of my life was when the, the doctors initially told me uh, I have to go to a specialist because uh, they think that it's cancerous. And so that drive home or drive to the hospital, uh, my wife had cancer when she was 12 years old, uh, Hodgkin stage four. So she went through the chemo radiation for six months as a 12 year old kid. And to tell her on the phone that I have cancer and, you know, thinking that I won't be um, alive to see my kids grow, uh, grow up and, and also feeling that I've had uh, many chances at life. And this is probably one that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to live past and, and get by um, because I've I've had so many opportunities to to uh, to live. And so I felt like I've used eight, eight lives that I had, you know, of, of the nine that I, I, I possibly have. And so um, that was the lowest point for me. But. Uh, thanks to Dana Farber and the doctors in Boston, they kind of gave me the direction, the leadership, the guidance to know that I can get through it. Um, and it's just about staying positive like I always have and being being strong for my my family. So, um, yeah, that that initial surgery, it, it worked. It was extensive, but it worked. Um, you know, I've been cancer free now for four years and I, I live life every day like it's my last. As sad as that might be for some, I look at it as let me enjoy like my coffee in the morning. Let me enjoy the food when I take a shower, when I get to interact with my, my boys and they jump on me in the morning and, um, you know, giving my wife a hug and kiss every morning and, and being able to go outside and, and um, smell the grass and, and feel the sun on my skin. I enjoy every single bit of, 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 of the day. And so um, that allows me to live a great life because, you know, whether it's having conversations and making the most out of them or, or putting a smile on someone's face, I enjoy everything. Um, so it, it's just allowed me to be a, a better human being, right? And give back. And so um, the way I live my life now is uh, living it to the fullest, but also trying to give back in every way possible. Um, you know, and it's not just to kids, it's not, not just to the next generation, but even for, for some adults who sometimes need a little perspective or uh, some motivation, some inspiration, because these are, these are tough times. So I, I felt like, you know, it's, it's on me to try and um, make, make someone's day a little bit better. That's an amazing story, Charlie.
really no. is. No. Focusing on the day, right? Focusing yeah. on the day. Yeah. You know, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, and I haven't shared this with you, but, you know, after you got into your accent, you know, just watching, you know, I was in MLS when you came back and you played in MLS and just watching you and how your determination to get back to a level um, was, was really inspiring. And, you know, um, it, it was amazing to see. And, you know, I wasn't there firsthand, but, you know, playing against you all the time and just watching you was was something um, special. So you should be really proud that, you know, that you were an inspiration to a lot of people that were, that were watching. No, thank you. Really appreciate that. You bet. Well, have a great rest of your summer. Um, I look forward to those national team games. Hopefully we see them right in October, November. Is that the, the schedule, the plan? That's the plan. Hopefully a couple games plan. in October, a couple games in November. So let's Fingers do it. Crossed. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm really uh, rooting for you. Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for next week when we have another special guest. Don't forget, listen, download, and subscribe.